Hey everybody, this is Dan Trottencheck, uh, and we're excited for this next uh, installment of the Taking Care of Business podcast. I get to sit down with a, with an old friend, a really old friend, uh, no, actually uh, a, a, a gentleman that I've known for 20 plus years, um, who uh, luckily enough has come back to rejoin our team here at NRHA and Hardware Retailing Magazine. Uh, gentlemen, some of you probably know by the name of Kevin Homan, and today Today, I'm going to talk to Kevin about his experiences since he, he, he parted ways with NRHA about 12 years ago. And a lot of those 12 years that he's been away from NRHA, he's actually spent um, out in the e-commerce arena. And so we're going to have a chat and we're going to talk about everything from from how consumables and groceries uh, are, are competing in today's environment to uh, really get some insight into Amazon and the way Amazon's going to market and how the whole e-commerce landscape and how Amazon is actually changing and how that could impact home improvement retailers. So hang tight. Uh, we're going to sit down in a few minutes and have a chat with our old friend, Kevin Homan. Today's episode is brought to you by Sacrete. Are you looking to add quality concrete, mortar, and stucco mixes, as well as repair and specialty items to your product lineup? Sacrete provides the tools you need to run a better business, whether that's through exceptional customer support, sales and marketing tools, varied product assortments, or just finding reliable products. Sacrete offers knowledgeable retail experts that understand the needs of your store. To learn more, visit www.sacrete.com slash hardware retailing. Hey, and welcome to everybody out there. This is Dan Trottencheck with another episode of Taking Care of Business. This time, uh, if you hear the rumbles and, and, and things like that in the background, it's, it's not my stomach. We're actually going through some thunderstorms in the, in the dog days of summer here in Indianapolis. But, uh, but hopefully the, uh, the, the skies won't open up too much during our presentation today. But that being said, I am uh, sitting here with actually, uh, uh, strangely enough, an old friend um, who has come back to join NRHA. And his journeys are kind of what make him interesting beyond just obviously his skill set. Um, but I'm sitting here with Hardware Retailing's new publisher, Kevin Homan. Um, he is also NRHA's new vice president of sales. And uh, Kevin is, as I said, I've probably known Kevin for coming on 20 years or so. Uh, as Kevin used to work with NRHA some 12 years ago, and he has rejoined us for another tour of duty here at RSA association and and wanted to sit down and talk with Kevin a little bit about uh, what he's been doing since he's been gone and maybe some of the things he wants to bring from his travels back here to, to little old NRHA so we can try and uh, do a better job of fulfilling our mission. Uh, Kevin, welcome. Dan, good to be back. Yeah, good, good, good to have you here. You know, it's one of those things like, uh, you, you, you know, you, you never say never. Who would have thought 12 years ago that uh, we'd be sitting here together uh, doing some kind of podcast? Of course, back 12 years ago, there really was nothing like a <laughs> podcast. The closest thing would have been like some sort of bizarre NRHA locker room interview. <laughs> but uh, We might have had one of those too. But. <laughs> yeah, but that was usually only after some cocktails. So, so Kevin, well, one, welcome back. Um, you, you, you have kind of, in some ways, taken my 
job uh, as publisher of hardware retailing. But in all actuality, that was uh, that was always a job that I was just kind of a, a, uh, uh, a, a caretaker for, let's say. Uh, my, my real background is kind of on the editorial and research side. So I'm getting to kind of slide back more into the editorial work. And you're taking over as kind of the business owner, if you will, of the publication. So I'm certainly glad to have your insights. Why don't you tell us a little bit before we dive into to, to your thoughts on what you want to see at NRHA and, and, and where we're going with NRHA and hardware retailing. Why don't you tell us a little bit about where you've been over the last 12 years on some remote desert island or what, what have you been doing? <laughs> well, in, in many ways, there were a few desert islands along the way. Uh, you would say that I probably split my career into sort of two pieces since I left NRHA. Uh, one half of it was in publishing. So um, I spent a number of years um, on a magazine called Progressive Grocer, sure, uh, which is in essence the hardware retailing to grocery retailers, yeah. how-to editorial. Um, and then the second part of my career, actually the past eight years or so, um, I've spent um, within retail, but in more of a consulting e-commerce uh, business. E-commerce, so. yeah, okay. Well, like I said, both those things certainly have application to what we try and do everything here at NRHA. I'm kind of curious, when you talk about uh, progressive grocery, I'm sure you kind of learned a few things working in the grocery industry. And it's, it's one thing that we always... Uh, you know, when I talk to retailers or when I get into a discussion with retailers about things like operations or inventory management, we often kind of refer to the to the grocery side of retailing. We say, well, you know, if you think managing inventory and hardware is difficult, how would you like it if 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 sixty percent of your inventory spoiled after five days? And and that's where you you know are on the grocery side. So you really have to know what's going on with your inventory and watch that stuff closely. Is there anything else that you kind of noticed in the grocery industry that that kind of parallels what we do or maybe we can learn from? Well, I will say the whole concept of cold chain, uh, when you think about refrigerated and foods that spoil, um, even to the basics about thinking about produce when you think about organic versus non-organic products as to how that needs to be shipped and handled and all of those things. Um, I think the biggest thing that really uh, amazed me was is that retailers in grocery have the ability to have a more frequent trip, but sure. there are challenges because there are many more people that customers can shop against. So when you think about your business in hardware, while you might be competing against another hardware store or a home center, um, w whether it be chain or whatever, uh, in that space, um, when people are going to shop for meals, you could be competing with a uh, quick serve restaurant. You could be competing with a convenience store on a milk trip. You could be right. competing with whatever. There's many more competitors. Uh, the other thing, as you said, is is you have to be much more process driven um, because of the fact that you've got all of this product that can spoil. Um, the third thing is, is very interesting. They, they spend a lot of time thinking about the layout. Um, you know, the racetrack pattern in a traditional grocery store where you have all the, all the perishables, um, produce, uh, dairy, deli, meat, frozen, et cetera, on the outside perimeter of the store. And then the center store is more the non-perishable products. So uh, they spend a lot of time thinking about how to lay the store out, how to think about product adjacencies and those kinds of things, which I'm certainly not saying people in hardware don't, but they seem to spend a lot more time changing those things around. And you see some real innovation, some of which are successful, some of which aren't in that space. 
I, I rarely get out of the candy and alcohol aisle at the supermarket, Kevin, so I don't see a lot of that stuff. You don't go into the chip aisle, something <laughs> well, to spell you. Well, only during football season, of course. Um, well, you know, that's that's certainly interesting. And, I, and um, you know, there are so many parallels. In a lot of ways, re- retail is retail. It's just where you sure. have to kind of kind of uh, master the finer points. Exactly. And, and, uh and as you were saying earlier, as we were talking, that grocery really two-step distribution isn't as big in, in grocery as it certainly is in the hardware industry. So there's there's obviously different dynamics at play, but it'll certainly be interesting in your in your uh, return here to kind of see how some of some of what you gleaned from the grocery industry plays into some of the things we might want to do or where you might want to uh, help us go at NRHA. But I also want to touch on uh, that second part of your career, which may even be more applicable to to what retail in our industry is fa- are facing and that's that e-commerce side of the business and 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 you were working with a lot of uh, of the kind of consumer packaged goods companies and, and trying to help them figure out this e-commerce landscape and I I know from some of the speaking and some of the events we do throughout the industry that that obviously e-commerce is is such a uh, hot topic right now for retail anywhere why don't you tell us a little bit about what you were doing what the company did there and kind of what your role was and some of the things that uh, that you you might um, have kind of picked up on while you were there about the e-commerce landscape. Sure. So what we did was we worked with very large, primarily consumer packaged goods company, consumer packaged good companies, um, and a lot of which at in the beginning were outside of perishables. So when you think about a company like Johnson and Johnson or Unilever or Procter and Gamble where they have shelf-stable products sure. that, that don't expire, um, but there's frequently um, a high level of consumption, so there is the ability to get to subscription, those kinds of things. We help them manage their business on, on Amazon primarily in, in relation to market share, and then across the retail set. And what was interesting about it was it was a globally scaled business. So if we worked with uh, Procter and Gamble, as an example, we might be monitoring 200 retailers wow. across 20, 30, 40 different company, countries. And what we would do is we would go to, as an example, in the U.S., we would primarily go to Amazon, Walmart, Target, and maybe CVS and Walgreens, and we would monitor their products as well as competitive set of companies. And we would look at availability. We would look at price on a daily basis. We would look at uh, ratings and reviews. We would look at search. Um, we would look at um, content as well. So yeah. we would score their content. Do you have 50 characters in a title? Um, do you have your brand name in the title? Do you have three or more images? Do you have five or more bullet right. points? And we w- they would use that to try and understand how they could better manage their business. Because in essence, if you look at an algorithm like Amazon, availability, price, ratings and reviews, and content would roll up into their search scores. So if they were out of stock a lot, they would drop their search score. If their price was too high, they would lose the buy box, that would drop their search score. And if their content wasn't maximized for the way Amazon did business, it would do that as well. But we also measured competitors, so they wanted to look at the retail landscape. Um, you know, in essence, it's a lot of the same kinds of things that, that retailers will do in this market where they have people go out and, and shop the shelf. Um, but we could do it every day and we could do it from a distance. You know, it's it's truly mind boggling the amount of data and the amount of data analysis that is going into the way companies are approaching doing business. But it certainly seems the way they're 
doing business with Amazon is largely driven by that. And, and, and it doesn't take much of an observer of Amazon or of what's going on in e-commerce to see that Amazon is certainly um, kind of leading the way for the manufacturers that want to do business with Amazon. And, and Amazon's changing a lot. They're changing the way they're doing business with manufacturers. And you and I were talking a little bit about that before uh, earlier, is that, is, that, is, that, is that Amazon is, is not going to necessarily be quite as perhaps open for business as, 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 uh, as they have been in the past when it comes to doing business with manufacturers. Well, it's interesting because when I started in this space about four years ago, we were checking availability, all these metrics once a day. Now what's literally happening is is companies like Procter & Gamble and Unilever and Johnson & Johnson are saying, we need intraday checks. We would like you to check our search placement every hour. We would like you to check pricing six times an hour. We'd like you to uh, six times a day. We'd like you to check availability six times a day. And they're taking that data and they're putting it into these huge data lakes with shipment uh, uh, data from their stuff, looking at ingredients, um, and and they're creating analytic-based platforms internally that they're mirroring with other data to try and generate insights. And from an Amazon perspective, um, a number of the people in the organization that I left came from backgrounds in Amazon. And I remember at a cocktail party having a conversation with a guy and having a very detailed conversation, he's like, Kevin, you have a very basic misunderstanding about Amazon. Amazon is not a retailer. Amazon is a marketer. Everything that they're doing has to do with implementing and driving value out of marketing. They're pricing based on what what their algorithms are telling them. They're taking these algorithms and, and basically you have to get a VP of merchandising approval if you're the buyer for a category to override an algorithm. So they're really forcing algorithms and data and metrics to drive their business. And now what they're doing is, and this is one of the things that is amazing to me, is that they don't really want to be a traditional retailer or even a traditional wholesaler. Right now, you talk about 1P versus 3P, 1P, which is where a brand sells to Amazon directly, and 3P, which is where they, in essence, market their own products on Amazon. Right. Um, I think the number is somewhere 55, close to 60% of their revenue is now coming from 3P, and they're actually driving to make that number even higher. Um, there's an interesting acronym that customers talk about, and it's actually an Amazon acronym acronym it's called crap and amazon I, i've heard that before <laughs> so well this in this case it actually is a is a retail acronym <laughs> oh, oh, okay. rather than your description of my efforts dan but <laughs> yes. um uh crap stands for can't realize a profit so amazon has this internal metric that they use to determine whether or not a product is profitable so it looks at margin it looks at turn it even looks at what kind of investment that re- that brand is making into that product so what kind of marketing dollars that they're giving but in essence what they really want to do is they want to own control of the relationship between Amazon and the brand and the consumer. So they want to be that middleman on those highest volume products. Yeah. But the expectation is by doing that, they can secure far greater dollars. And I think what you're going to see over the next couple of years 
Is there AMS and AMG spend that these large companies like P&G is going to be making is going to be a huge profit center for them. The Amazon media services. Exactly. Yeah, right. And and I think another change is that Amazon at at one point, um, you know, the marketplace to the world, and it was was a, a company that you know, a lot of smaller manufacturers or maybe not the manufacturers who were the the uh, channel-leading brands would say, well, a- Amazon's a, a, a great leveler. It levels the playing field for us. It gives us an opportunity to reach the, the 60 million, 600, whatever that, that Amazon reaches, just like any of the big brands. And, and that's something that's kind of changing with Amazon's philosophy as well, isn't it? Well, what's interesting to me too is, um you know, and a, a, an old a mentor told me that, you know, one person's version of hell is when every one of your wishes is granted. And the challenge with e-commerce is it's not accretive. Right. Um, you're cannibalizing your own sales from somewhere else. Um, Amazon was doing a very good job of consolidating that. And while they were small, the brands had some control. Now, as they've gotten larger and the revenues there, they don't have as much control. The other thing that's quite interesting right now is that if you look at it as a percentage, Walmart is actually generating higher year-over-year increases in their e-commerce business, but yet still saying that it's not profitable, but they recognize that they need to cannibalize their business. But in essence, I think what Amazon is trying to do now is they want to own the relationship with the consumer, but they don't want to own the goods. So in 3P, what's happening is, is you're able to market your products on there, meaning you can put them on there. You have the ability to pay to place them and move them up and down. Amazon's algorithm is going to place you wherever. But Amazon doesn't actually own the goods. Right. You're selling the goods. You have the ability to ship and, you, and pay a 15% fee once that product is sold. The other thing is if you want to speed it up and be part of Prime and some of the other things is you can be fulfilled by Amazon, but you're paying a warehousing fee. So Amazon owns the warehouse space. They own control of the goods, if you will, in terms of how it's being placed on the site. But you own all the cost. Right. Um, and I don't, you know, some guys may think that's good. I kind of think that that's maybe not necessarily in your best interest. But at a certain point when that number keeps going up, I don't think unless you're a, a, a PNG or a Unilever, you're probably not going to have much choice in that matter. Hey, everybody. Before we go on to the next segment of our podcast, I just wanted to make sure everybody listening knows that if you're an independent home improvement retailer in the United States or Canada, you're already a member of the North American Retail Hardware Association. And so that means if you're a hardware store, home center, or lumberyard, and you're independently owned, you're already a member of NRHA. And the NRHA has been in existence since 1900 and serves its members in a variety of ways, from Hardware Retailing Magazine and our two podcast series, to exclusive research and events, the association is here to help you become better and more profitable business owners. So we encourage you to make sure you take advantage of the services that are available to you that can help you better compete. To learn more about what NRHA does for you, make sure you visit us at www.nrha.org. We have heard, and 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 we actually, strangely enough, at one point uh, uh, had some outreach about private labeling some hand tools under Amazon's uh, private labels, 
And, uh, you know, so I, I guess one of the questions that emerges now is, you know, it, not dissimilar from the questions we had that you and I would discuss 15 years ago about, you know, uh, to some degree, do, you know, what, what position are manufacturers putting themselves in when they strike a deal with back then? It was the big boxes. Today, it's Amazon. Is it is it is it is it? short-term good deal, long-term, I, I don't know, you know, uh, I mean, so where are they headed? Well, it, it's interesting, in, in the grocery business, um, private label was accelerating over the past how many years, and the perception was is that somewhere in the neighborhood of 20% of the volume could be in private label. I think the interesting thing in grocery is, is now you're starting to see these guys doing good, better, best versions of private label. Right. I don't know that you can do that in home improvement products. Maybe you can, depending on the category. Um, I think it's going to happen. I think in categories where there's no clear number one, um, in, a, in a sense, there's always a clear number one. But I mean, in the sense of being a heavily recognized branded sure, product. Yeah. So you know, I think in hand, hand and power tools, that's probably going to be different. But if you look at what happened in um, cabling, right? You know, USB cables or cables to connect your television. Yeah. They've made great inroads in sure. there. So I think there's things that are happening. I, I think all is not lost, though, to me, is that if you look at what's happening in grocery, and again, different different product mix, but some of the same capabilities is is Walmart has really been able to leverage their position against Amazon by virtue of their store network. Sure. Yeah, so the, and mortar. Right. yeah, so the ability to click online and collect in store and you can set it up and get there um, you know, in a particular time frame and everything's ready to go, I think it solves the last mile that all the grocery store guys have st- stuck with. They still have the pick and pack thing right. you know because in a traditional the consumer comes in and picks and packs and and delivers their order home but i think they're they're coming around and i think it's working pretty well for them um what's interesting to me um somebody told me which i had never thought about was um a guy told me he used click and collect and grocery to curate his shop and what i mean by that is is he would pick out the items that he knew were duplicative. So I know I'm going to buy Triscuits and I know I'm going to buy a half gallon of milk or whatever. And he would put his order in and then he would say, I'm going to get my order delivered at 11. I'm going to pick up my order at 1130. He'd go into the store at 11 o'clock and then he'd shop all the perishables. So he wasn't necessarily using it to replace a trip. He was using it to um, to speed up a trip. Well, and that's and that's a great point because I know that one of the challenges that we've talked about and and click and collect or BOPIS, buy online, pick up in store, yep. all, that kind of terminology. I mean, it's certainly all the studies that I've looked at within the home improvement industry and our friends over at Farnsworth were just talking about some of the research that they had done on this really still indicates that by far, and you see what's happening at Home Depot and Lowe's, far and away the buy online, pick up in store is, is the primary um, method for online shopping within home improvement. And a lot of that, you know, has been said that consumers still want to confirm their selections. They want to be able to say, you know, I thought this was the right faucet, but ask someone in face to face. Now this is going to fit my sink or, or, or whatever, whatever it might be. So we, we sort of have that in this, that this industry that there's a somewhat, you know, uh, I don't hate to say, hesitate to say built in protection, but there is the presence of brick and mortar certainly um, uh, is 
still a value, um, a, a great value within home improvement and other areas. But but what you were just saying is interesting because one of the other discussions around e-com is how does that impact something that's so important to profitability in, that, in this industry, and that's that impulse purchase. You get someone that comes in, you know, we always talk about the old scenario, someone comes in to buy a can of paint, and then you got to sell them the drop cloths and the, and exactly. the roller cages and all that kind of stuff. And, and the, a concern beyond how do I get hooked up with e-commerce and start it in my life is when e-commerce kicks in, is that going to eliminate kind of this, this I, these ancillary purchases, these add-on items? But like you're saying in, in grocery, and that's, that, that's really interesting, is that maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's, I mean, I think of my wife and my trips to the grocery store where it's like, well, we'll have a list, but that doesn't mean, you know, that's all we come away with. But but being able to curate your purchases and say, well, I know I need this and I know I need milk and I know I need eggs and I know I need, you know, cranberries or whatever it is. But then you go in and say, but now I'll take a little time and, and, and add stuff to that collection. Yeah. And, you know, just one other point that I would make, it was very interesting a number of years ago as working with HP. And HP said 95% of all the research for products. This was You're talking products. about Hot Pockets, right? Hewlett Packard. Oh, Hewlett Packard. Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but this was probably five years ago. They said 95% of research on printers was done online. Right. But like 80% of the purchases were done in store. Which those numbers point. are really similar to what we see in the industry. I'm going to butcher right. these and, and Jim Robish will punch me in the mouth when I do that. But but I think it's something like 80% of purchase uh, uh, research is beginning online now, but still something like 70% of purchase completion is done in the store. So, I, I mean, it's not, you know, today's consumer, very similar to what you're saying about printers, will start looking at ceiling fans or they'll start looking at um, outdoor living you know patio sets online but then they still want to come into the store to complete those purchases and it's an important point that we're that we've been kind of soapboxing in this industry for a while is it's so imperative that independent home improvement retailers have an online presence and even if they don't have perhaps like a a um, a, a fully uh, uh, worked out e-commerce system, at least if they could say these are the products we have and showcase stuff online, they could still win over some of those customers who want to look at products but then complete the purchases in store. Exactly. And, and a couple of points uh, on that is, is like, I think in, in the grocery business, they talk about whichever retailer has the capability to own the list, they win. So in other words, for an average consumer, they've got 600 products in their home, 200 of them they purchase on a regular basis. So what they want you to do is put those 200 products in there, and then they look at your consumption patterns and figure out, okay, it's probably time for Dan to buy another box of Triscuits because, so that's their way of trying to get to some of the impulse buy. You know, I think maybe, it requires a hardware retailer to, to put a little bit of thought of it into it. And, and what I mean by that, and it's easy for me to say I don't run a store, but you know, in other words, if somebody comes in and buys a five-gallon bucket of paint, you've got a rough idea of how many square feet they're going to cover. Yeah. And, and maybe you know, when they come in, you can have a basket of stuff that says, hey, just want to make sure and see it being seen as a service opportunity, right? These guys really care about me is, hey, you know, we put some other products over here and here's a drop cloth and here's here's a couple of rollers. And Just want to make sure you have what you need. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And again, I recognize it's not easy to do. Um, I also think that 
all of the stuff that's going on right now is an incredible, it, it's, it's not a David and Goliath thing, right? So when you talk to a company like Procter & Gamble, right, they've got five or 600 SKUs. But the problem is, is in order to effectively market into something like an Amazon or whatever, because they're global, they are so heavily matrixed. And one of the biggest problems is e-commerce is very disruptive. It knocks down silos in an organization. And if you're heavily siloed, like those companies were forced to do, it's very difficult. You have a supply chain person globally and by region, and then there's somebody on the Amazon business and something else. So if you want to look at that, you know, we look at packaging globally. So when Amazon says we want frustration-free packaging and says, hey, you need to change your pack packaging for head and shoulders, they're like, holy God, I can't do that. Do you have any idea what I have to go through to do that? And then even like putting content online. So I think there are opportunities for people to compete. I still think, especially with these products, ours where you need some knowledge base, is that the ability to have a locally uh, a local person who may understand building codes, who may sure. understand you know the fact that the walls in this area, because it's an old neighborhood, are plaster as opposed to drywall, and there are other issues. I think there's great opportunities, and and again, we have a huge network of locally owned stores that can get the product to them as fast as Amazon with much more knowledge. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And and I think that's an interesting uh, point to take away too, um, which I, I think any company can learn from. And, and, and this is probably, you know, the books on this kind of stuff will be coming out soon. But this whole concept of breaking down silos, I mean, e-commerce and those kind of those kind of demands are forcing these these companies that have been around for a while and had these kind of tried and true methods of operation to break down those walls. But that's probably a pretty good lesson that just about any company can learn of of how much more productive you can start thinking. I mean, when you apply that to a retail level and you start thinking about, well, you know, maybe our cashiers aren't really talking to our buyers and our buyers aren't really talking to the people who are running our promotions or or, or, or planning what is going to go into the circular. And maybe we need to open those loops up because, man, the more freely information flows, uh, you know, now with information really because of, of where we are in our, our online uh, society, information's flowing like that. And the ability to have that free flow of information in your organization is probably more important than ever. Well, when you think about the fact that Amazon is dynamically pricing and changing search intraday, hourly, you know, you know, twice, you know, two, three, four, five, six, ten, twelve times a day. You you have to be more responsive. I will say one of the things as I was listening to you speak, Dan, that was very interesting to me as we were going through some of this stuff. So in the in the early years, and again, it seems I, I kiddingly say e-commerce years are like dog years. It's like <laughs> yeah. you know every every year is like seven years because things change so rapidly. But when we would get to organizations where we wouldn't be getting any traction, there were usually two things that happened, which were very interesting. And I think it's appropriate in light of some of the training conversations I heard last week when we were at the IGC show, is thing one was the CEO never stood up in front of the organization to tell them how important e-commerce was. So if he never talked about it, people assumed it wasn't important. The second piece was, and just if not more important, but as important was, 
once they put the once the comp was tied to e-commerce performance, it totally changed everything. So communicating properly. So if you're a hardware retailer and you believe e-commerce is important in your market, I think you got to let your people know. Right. Because if you don't tell them, they're going to assume that. Yeah, we're kind of doing this because we have to. It's not really important. And then if you really think it's important, there are some simple metrics that you can probably measure and tie some kind of compensation to. I know variable comp is not always, you know, right. a big thing is. But I also think the thing is, is you can't make e-commerce an orphan. Somebody has to own it. Yeah. And if they own it, then there's probably a logical rationale to put some kind of compensation tied to it. Well, well, and it's interesting that, you know, I, I, it doesn't really matter where you're located as a retailer right now or where, uh, how big your operation is. Um, if, you are in a, if you're in rural Kansas and you're running a home improvement retailing operation, you are impacted by e-commerce. Oh, definitely. You're impacted by it when that customer walks through your door with their iPhone in their hand and looks up the pricing on Amazon. And Amazon, as, as you pointed out, is doing that algorithmic, dynamic, minute-by-minute pricing and and no, whether you like it or not, they're going to weigh and measure you based on what they see on their phone. And and one of the things when when I get out and get to talk about competing against Amazon that I, I really try and drive home is that you don't necessarily need to be able to beat Amazon, just like you don't need to be able to beat uh, Home Depot or Lowe's when it comes to pricing. But you have to have a value proposition that you can clearly articulate as this is why our pricing is different. And another thing you need to consider in today's day and age is price matching policy how do we when someone comes up to your service desk with their phone in their hand tapping on their phone you know they're going to say well why is this this price and you have to have something logical that you can tell them why we're higher why we're lower or or are we going to match that price i totally agree and what's interesting to me is is that amazon is not always the low cost oh absolutely not so depending on the product line and everything else they do variable pricing as well it's probably much more sophisticated perhaps than what you know an independent hardware retailer might do in kansas but they're doing the same kinds of things i also think in my mind and maybe the numbers have changed but i can't imagine they've changed that dramatically is if 80 percent of, a, of an independent hardware store's revenue is coming from repair and maintenance. Mm-hmm. There's an immediate need there. Um, on Amazon, you may not need an Im- immediate need. You know, um, the concept of need to have goods versus want to have goods and want to have goods, you're probably looking at price variability sure. a little bit more and you're maybe willing to wait because it's not something that you need right now, like an iPad or an Apple right. Watch or whatever. But, you know, if your toilet's broken and... Yeah, I mean, two days is a, is okay to wait for a new iPad, but if your toilet's overflowing, you, two days is a hell of a long time. Yeah, and yeah. If, I mean, what's the average ticket now in the 20s? Yeah, about $22, $23. So if you're, you know, if you're off by, you know, 10%, I mean, am I really going to wait to save $2? Yeah. Um, I do think you have to have a logic, and I do think that, you know, depending on what it is, you may want to try to make some kind of price concession. You would think if it's if it's an all or nothing, right, if they're going to spend $22 or they're going to walk out the door and you know the goods have 
40, 50, 60% margin, it might be worthwhile splitting the difference with them. Well, Again, absolutely. Yeah, and it's just, like we said, you, you, common have, to, sense, you right? have to come to terms with what your policy is going to be, and it has to be, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be giving the customer everything they want, but it has to be something the customer can understand and say, okay, exactly. I might not like it, but I at least understand what your policy is now, as opposed to saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm not sure what we do with an Amazon price. or Well, the simple thing I would say, just, just to remind people that you're paying $120 a year or whatever the prime membership right. is now to allow you to get that ship for free. So, you know, if you're if you're doing 60 transactions a year or 50 once a week, it's two and a half bucks that you're right. paying for that honor. Yeah. Um, so I, I think there are some things you can say, is it going to sway the consumer? I, I don't know. But I think if you have a logic and, and a rationale and you're reasonable about it, I think people will find a way it's interesting sales are still growing continue to grow i mean the kagers and everything else i'm seeing is, is and it's not just coming from price increases smart retailers are figuring out how to address it well and that's just it you know we uh um this is the latest evolution in in retail in the home improvement industry and i could say this because you and i go back you know probably you're you, you actually a little bit longer for for you uh with with uh joining nrha but at least with your your involvement in this industry and you know, 25 years ago, 28 years ago, it was a different threat. Then, you know, when I first joined here, oh man, it was the big boxes, and then it was, the, then it was the big boxes that are opening the small format stores. Then it was Sears neighborhood hardware stores, and 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 now it's now it's Amazon. Well, I think know. it's interesting. The two category killers, Kmart and Sears, merged together and went out of business in a spectacular fashion. So, who's to say? I mean, the one thing that I keep thinking about as it relates to Amazon, Amazon is a voracious. Um, consumer of capital within their organizations now AWS makes money I know they're making you know they're making money now but I think there's two things that fund that one is their stock price sure and if they don't continue to perform their stock price is going to go down and then you know by the way you've got prime which probably costs money at $119 you've got prime video you've got prime music you've got devices you've got you know content if you look at what Netflix and all these guys they're spending a lot of money oh, and they're yeah. able to spend this money primarily because their stock price is growing if anything happens all of a sudden they're not going to be able to fund all those things and they're building what they're really trying to do is build an ecosystem that surrounds the consumer and sort of gates them think about a castle right in the old days you're inside the castle walls and you get all your food and everything else <laughs> yeah. there and it's like now somebody opens the castle doors and suddenly you look out and then, wow there's a great big bright beautiful world out there and despite all they're telling me about all the marauding huns that are going <laughs> to chop my head off you know it looks pretty nice out there maybe i ought to go check something else out well it's interesting to kind of come to that point, I was uh, listening to a speaker who was talking specifically about Amazon's impact on uh, on on retail, and she made a very what I thought was a very good point. She said that uh, um, brick and mortar retail is not dead; bad brick and mortar retail is dead. And well, and, and I think the, the the and I've probably screwed up paraphrasing her there, but but the point was that what Amazon is doing in the marketplace is hastening the demise of poorly run retail. It, but but that's the same with any category changing 
uh, concept. Uh, Home Depot didn't necessarily kill off a whole bunch of really good, no. well-run retail operations. They killed off a bunch of retail operations that couldn't evolve and adapt. And you just look at our industry today, and there's 35,000 really good, strong, independent retailers still operating out there that figured out how to operate within the within the margins left by Home Depot and 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 overcome and 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 even within the spaces where Home Depot was good they could still find ways to compete and overcome so uh, there was a, a presentation uh, a guy that I work for that put together a great presentation he talked about the valley of death and he said <laughs> if you look to the two poles on to the right or left depending on which way you want to orient was low cost so when you think about low cost, you would think about Aldi and grocery, you would think about Walmart, and then you have differentiated. So differentiated, somebody who comes up with a unique selling proposition like some of our independent retailers do, right. that is clearly differentiated so that when that consumer goes in to that store, they know the experience that they're gonna get, whether it be service or unique products or whatever. And he said, low cost is very hard to get to when there's a limited number of players differentiated is hard to get to but once you get there you have the ability to have more staying power and if you're not one or the other you're in the valley of death and this was five (laughs) years ago he said you want a perfect example of who sits squarely in the valley of death he said it's Kmart and Sears and look at where they are but the other thing is when you look at it from retail I mean People put a toe tag on Target a few years ago, right? right? And and I mean, and Best Buy as Best well. Best Buy, yeah. you know, what Best Buy figured out was is that consumers didn't necessarily always want a low price. I think the big thing that Best Buy did that clearly differentiated them was they had seamless inventory. Yeah. So as a consumer, you could go to the Best Buy site, and you, if you wanted the product today, you could literally look at which of the three stores surrounding had you it. had it. And so they clearly were able to sell the same goods, maybe a little bit, you know, within reason, roughly the same price, or they had a product that could get them to the same price. And you could get it today in an hour. Well, and, and, you know, you look, you have to look at yourself as a consumer. And when I look at the way that I have purchased electronics in the last two to three years, Sure, I look at Amazon, but I also look at Best Buy because there's one a mile and a half from my house. Yep. And if it's something that I just want to say, listen, I just want to go pick that up today and get it, man, I would order it from Best Buy. And something else Best Buy had was a very clearly articulated price matching policy. Right. Um, I remember you know, several few years back buying a printer at Christmas, and I did what most consumers do. I pulled it up on Amazon while I was standing in the aisle at Best Buy, and sure enough, Amazon had it cheaper. I went up to the Best Buy associate. They articulated their policy to me, and I understood it. And they ended up matching the price, but I understood their policy, and I thought that because it had to be, it couldn't be a third-party seller. It had to come from Amazon. It yeah. couldn't be any kind of special discounts and all, and you know, and all that kind of stuff. But it made sense, and it seemed fair to me. So even if they would have said, "We gotta, you know, we can't get it to ninety-five dollars. We can get it to ninety-eight dollars." At that point, I probably would have said, whatever, $3, just give me the printer. you know. Um, but but to, to your point, both those things were incredibly important. Well, and I, I think about it, right, and maybe things have changed in the past dozen years, but I still am a, a, you know, a consumer in the home improvement industry, is you're not really going in, if you're in a repair and maintenance mode, you're not necessarily going in to buy a specific product, right? You're there to buy a solution. My toilet's sure. broke. Tell me how to fix it. So the fact that you may have a fluid master, you know, with a warranty on it versus Amazon might have a private label, uh, you know, mm-hmm. 
I think they're there. And, and once they're in the store, I would sense that the likelihood to walk out for a dollar or two is probably not because then you got to go home and you got to order it and you got to wait for it to come and everything else. Whereas yeah. you can literally say, you know what, he's trying. Yeah, I'll take it and go. Now, <laughs> yeah. I, I I don't know what that causes in terms of you know inventory, uh, POS, and all the other things sure. that you might have to do, but. I'm guessing there's ways that very smart retailers can figure this well, out. Well, and there's no doubt that those retailers and the distributors within this industry are trying to sort through those issues to put independence, to give independence the tools to be on a level playing field in terms of e-commerce. And it's good that the industry is thinking about those sorts of things. Kevin, it, it's been it's been great kind of just, I mean, we get lost in the, in the conversation <laughs> about e-commerce and so on. But I, I guess I have one kind of question I wanted to leave you with is, you know, um, NRHA in this industry in general, I see all the times, not with just NRHA, but with the home improvement industry, there's a lot of people who will leave the industry, but there's a lot of people that come back to this industry. And you're obviously in the twilight of your career, but <laughs> but what is it What is it that brought you back to NRHA aside from getting to work with me? And uh... well, well, Sure, we'll go with that, Dan. Uh, I, I think it's a couple of things. You know, it's hard, it's hard, um, to replace the people in, in this business. Yeah. Very nice people, very smart people, very passionate people. Um, what I love too is when you walk around these shows, the innovation that occurs. You know, you go in and somebody says, hey, I've, in, in grocery, I've got an innovative new product, you know, and it's like, okay, what is it? Um, well, guess what? We're, we're putting natural flavors in, in you know, cocoa pebbles. <laughs> I'm like, well, wow, that's really hard to get excited about. But if somebody comes up with a new tool or a new solution, yeah. you know, as somebody who owns a home, I mean, it's pretty interesting. Um, and I, I really enjoy hardware retailers, you know, in the eight years that I was here previous, you met a lot of great people. They're really smart and they really understand their customers and they work hard to to make sure that they're providing a family-like atmosphere for their for their employees. So it's hard to replace that. And I'm not sitting here saying that other there aren't other great people in e-commerce or whatever, but there's a there there seem to be a lot more great interesting people in this business. It, it is uh, it is certainly uh, um, everybody that that uh, is in it knows it is a, a special industry to be involved in and and obviously you and I have known each other for a while and so I, I give you a hard time and and uh, we, this is an industry <laughs> I could die in, Dan. <laughs> uh, you may kill but, me, but that's a whole other story. But uh, we joke around a lot. But I, I I'm really glad to have you back, Kevin. And I think just the illustration of the conversation we were just able to have um, really, uh, you know, it, it, it gets me excited about the possibilities of, of bringing, you know, you back into this organization, you back into this industry and what it's going to help us, the, the, the kind of knowledge base that it brings back to us to at NRHA and at hardware retailing. And, and I'm really excited about you being here and getting back out into the industry and kind of sharing your perspectives of what you've seen in, uh, in, in the big bright world out there and how it can help industry uh, manufacturers wholesalers and retailers and fulfill our mission of helping retailers become better and more profitable. I'm looking forward to it as well. And the other thing that was amazing to me when we started talking about re-engaging again, Dan, was how many new products that we've had. Oh gosh, I mean, yeah. the, the NRHA's ability to innovate and create new things with the, the RMCP, sorry for all the all the acronyms, but you know, there's, there's <laughs> all that. kinds of new products yeah. here um, that I think are both beneficial for, for brands, vendors, as well as retailers. So I'm excited about that. 
Great, Kevin. Hey, thank you for joining me on the Taking Care of Business podcast. And uh, I'm sure you'll be uh, seeing a lot of retailers, manufacturers, and distributors in the coming weeks. Definitely. And I appreciate uh, being back and look forward to reengaging with all the great people in this, in this business. Thanks a lot, Kevin. Bye. This episode of Taking Care of Business with Dan Trottenjack is being brought to you by one of our fantastic sponsors, Member Insurance. Are you seeking an insurance agent who truly understands the unique risks of your business? You can let the 47-year history and industry experience of Member Insurance go to work for you. Did you know that Member Insurance is member-owned? They offer annual dividends. Member Insurance provides superior claim service 24-7 and offers 24-hour roadside assistance. And Member Insurance even provides free risk management and free HR consultations. And this is brand new from them. They just announced that Member Insurance is offering a three-year business owner's policy with locked-in rates. So if you're a hardware store, home improvement store, you're definitely going to want to check out the services they have to offer. And to learn more about Member Insurance, please visit www dot memberinsurance.com.